Good morning, church, and welcome to our once a year 9 a.m., 10 o'clock service, where it says 10 on the clock, but it sure feels like 9, doesn't it? Uh, if you're watching online, I want to say good morning and welcome to you as well. Um, part of my prayer for you this morning, if you're watching the live stream, is that whether you're in your living room, garage, den, wherever, that that would become sacred space as you worship with us through music and as we encounter God's word together. So praying you're having a great morning of worship also. Um, I, I want to start this morning with what feels like uh, a duh question, that when I ask it, you're going to say, well, of course. Uh, but I, I want to preface it by saying Paul uses this really interesting word in Ephesians 4. He uses this word futile. And, and it's not a word that we use too often, but what I think is interesting is this word futile means something that has no purpose, doesn't really have a whole lot of meaning, it's fruitless. And so if I were to ask you this question, hey, I've got this great thing that I'm doing, this great mission, this thing that I'm going on, but it's absolutely futile, would you like to join me? You'd be like, what? Why, why would you even ask that? Of, of course not. If it's pointless, if it's worthless, if it has no ultimate goal, like, of course I don't want to do that. I don't want to invest time, energy, and resources into something that has no purpose. We would all answer a resounding no to that. But what I think is interesting is sometimes in life, we have a way of getting pulled into things that are futile. Case in point, has anyone ever argued with a toddler? Right? If you're laughing, you either have a toddler, know a toddler, you have an aunt and uncle, you've babysat, you, you know this struggle, right? Because toddlers, no one wakes up today and says, you know what, I'm going to get into a conflict with a three-year-old. You don't do that, but they have a way of pulling you in, right? And, and so um, just, just to give you a, an idea of what I'm working with, right? We have one of our children, I won't say her name because I'm not going to do that to her, but... Uh, she is uh, rather physical in how she shows affection, right? And so, actually, I mentioned this in our small group on Wednesday, but one of her ways of showing affection is she loves to just throw a gut punch. <laughs> she'll be walking by her sisters, and she'll throw a right hook, or me, by the way. She doesn't do it to Lauren, but she'll, she'll just throw this right hook out of nowhere to catch you right in the gut, right? And it's like, okay, you're three, but it still kind of hurts, right? <laughs> and, and so... The other day, she walked by her sister and just dexed her in the stomach and I said, whoa, 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 you got you to watch out. You can't just throw punches at people. And, and to give you an idea of what I'm working with, she just kind of looks over her shoulder and she goes, watch your face. <laughs> and, just, and just keeps walking, right? And, and I was like, okay, three things. One, you can go to timeout. Two, as you're in timeout, I'm going to laugh hysterically because that's funny. But three, don't ever say that to me again, right? <laughs> But that, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm dealing with, right? And that, that same child, when we were in daycare, I would show up at daycare to pick her up and I'm exhausted, they're exhausted. And we have this battle over, of all things, wearing shoes home from daycare. And, and every day I'd get there and I'd say, okay, put your shoes on, let's load up in the car. I'm hungry, you're hungry, let's go home and eat dinner. And we would have this meltdown over wearing shoes. She didn't want to wear shoes. I wanted her to wear shoes. And, and, and here's the thing about parenting. The kids know a secret that we often as parents make decisions about things that we actually don't really know about. We just think it should be right. So my three-year-old looks at me one day and she goes, dad, why do I have to wear shoes? And in my mind, I'm like, honestly, I don't know. Right? Like, because I had to wear shoes home from daycare, so you have to wear shoes home from daycare. And we would have this argument over and over. And church, can I just tell you, it was absolutely futile. I never got anywhere. She never got anywhere. We'd get in the car. She's in tears. I'm near tears because I'm tired. I'm having this fight with a three-year-old. And, and finally, I just decided, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to fight that battle. 
And so when it was warm, I just got to the point where I was like, you know what? If you don't want to wear shoes, you just carry them. As long as you carry them, I don't care. Load them in the car and we'll be fine. Because that was going to be a futile endeavor, something that ultimately had no purpose, something that had no significance. And I never meant to get sucked into it, but it had a way of being pulled into it, right? So none of us would ever say, yes, sign me up for something that's absolutely futile. But sometimes in the current of culture, we get sucked along into things that are ultimately futile. And the reason I tell you that is because Paul is going to ratchet up uh, the heat in Ephesians chapter 4. He's going to start pushing into some things and he calls us to leave behind a futile, pointless way of living and he calls us into a new way of living, right? And so here's the key calling that Paul has for us today that I want us to, to, to wrestle with. Paul will call us to walk in the way of love, a way of life that reflects the character and the heart of Jesus, Right? That's Paul's call to the church at Ephesus and ultimately to us is that we would walk in the way of love. And, and to do this, Paul contrasts this way of living with, with two different extremes. On the one side, he'll have what he calls the old way, where we live out of our old self. This is a way of living that ultimately, Paul says, is futile. It lacks the meaning, purpose, fruit, and the fulfillment that we're called to. And instead, Paul calls us to embrace a, a, a new way of living, a way of living that is a way of love a way that is modeled and patterned after the life and the teaching of Jesus. And so it's with that in mind that I want to pick up in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. And you'll remember a couple weeks ago that we talked about how a lot of Ephesians is about these two ideas of identity and ethics, who we are and how we live. And so what Paul does in, in this chapter is he contrasts the old and the new life. He wants us to think about who are we And in light of our identity, how should we then live? So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Paul says, Now I say this, and I testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ. So what I want you to notice, church, is uh, we'll finish five, one or two here in a second. But what I want you to notice is the urgency behind what Paul says. Paul doesn't say, hey, I want you to think about this. Paul doesn't say, I want you to consider this. Notice what he says. He says, now I say this and I testify in the Lord that you must. And, and do you notice the sort of escalation in, in his speech? I'm, I'm telling you this. I'm testifying. He says, not just on my own strength. Paul says, I am testifying in the authority of God that you must. In other words, this is of the utmost urgency. This is what you have to do, right? And notice what Paul said in, in verse 17. He says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, go with me to Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. He says, therefore... Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And the reason I read the beginning and ending of this section is you need to see the contrast that Paul is painting. He begins by saying, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Instead, he says, you need to walk in the way of love, a way in which you imitate, a way in which you model the life of Jesus Christ. Don't walk in the way of the Gentiles, walk in the way of love. And for Paul, this isn't kind of important. For Paul, he doesn't say you should strongly consider. He says, I testify with all the authority of God that you must. Church, for us, this passage is a must. We have to grab hold of what he's saying. 
Now, don't, don't you find it interesting that, uh, as Pastor Steve talked about several weeks ago, and we've mentioned that the church at Ephesus is primarily a Gentile audience, meaning they're not Jewish. And I find it interesting that Paul says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And the head scratcher is, Paul tells Gentiles not to walk like Gentiles. But he's doing something really interesting here. What he's doing is he's reminding them of what he already talked about in Ephesians 2. He told them, you, you are no longer foreigners and strangers to God's, but you are fellow citizens of God's kingdom. You belong in the family of God. You are his beloved children. So what Paul tells the church at Ephesus, your identity is no longer with the Gentile red pagan culture that's secular. Your identity is as children of God. So step out from that. Don't live any longer like the Gentile culture that doesn't know Jesus step out of that. You can't. You must not walk in that way anymore, right? That's the urgency that Paul has with this. And part of me goes, okay, why, Paul, what's the big deal? Why are you so, so uh, urgent about this? Notice the way he describes this way of living. He says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. He says, they are darkened in their understanding. Do you want to have a futile mindset? Do you want to have a way of seeing the world that is pointless, a way of seeing the world in which you fail to grasp the truth of what matters? And what Paul is saying is that in a culture far from Jesus, the cultural patterns and the cultural occurrence of the way people are doing life is, falls far short of the truth. They are darkened in their understanding. It is a way, a worldview, a way of seeing the world that is ultimately futile. And, and, and we need to think about this, right? If you take out the hope of the gospel, that a loving God created you and designed you uniquely, that he has a purpose for you, and that a world broken by sin is being redeemed, if you take away all of that truth, what is there to live for? And this is why Paul says this culture, he says they've given themselves over to sensuality. They are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And so what Paul is doing, his charge is don't live futilely in the pattern of the culture around you. He says step out from that because it's a futile, it is a pointless way of thinking that ultimately is separated from the life of God and fails to grasp the truth of what matters. And I think what Paul knows is this, life apart from Christ results in a me-oriented way of living in which I am at the center of my universe. So I think you get the sense that for the people in the city of Ephesus, part of their thinking, if there's no hope, right? If you don't have the truth of the gospel, why wouldn't you live in a way that says, I want to find comfort, I want to find convenience, and I want to experience every pleasure I can, right? And, and isn't that the way our, our culture works even today? A culture without the hope of Christ says, you know what? As long as it's not hurting anybody, do whatever you want. Give into your desires. By the way, Paul calls those desires deceitful. Did you notice that? But we live in a culture that says, whatever you're feeling, go for it, as long as you don't hurt anybody else. And what that fails to recognize is you cannot make any decision in your life without impacting other people. And so we live with this idea that I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to put myself at the center of my universe. It's only affecting me. No big deal. And Paul says, no, that is a futile way of thinking about life in which you're darkened in your understanding. And I think the, the cultural problem is this. We often settle for pursuits of pleasure when we despair of finding purpose. And I think we live in a culture that is in a place of despairing and without a sense of what really matters, right? If you don't know the truth of Jesus, you don't know what really matters, why wouldn't you just pursue every pleasure you can? And it is a, a way of living that is corrupting and ultimately leads to a futile, 
pointless place. And Paul is eagerly trying to call the church into that new way of living. And so again, Paul says, don't live like a culture that's far from Jesus. Why? Notice what he says at the end of verse 20. He says, uh, let, let me back up and read 19 for context. He says, they, the culture around you have become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Do verse 20. But he says, that is not the way you learned Christ. In other words, Paul says, that is not the pattern of living that you've been called to. You have learned the life of Jesus, which he summarizes in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, that, that Jesus died on the cross for us. Paul says, push into that kind of living. This is not what you've learned about Jesus, a, a life of pursuing every kind of impurity and sensuality and sexual immorality. Paul says, that is not what you've learned. So he says, step out of that and step into this new life that Paul has been teaching them about. But, but here's, the, here's the cultural question, right? Culture wants to ask, well, where's truth? Why should I walk with my life aligned to Jesus? Right, that, I, I think that's one of the key pressing cultural questions today. Paul answers that in verse 21. He, he says this. He says, I'm assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, when Paul says, I'm assuming that you heard him, we have to remember that Paul spent time in Ephesus. He knows that they know about Jesus, right? And so there's a little bit of, he's kind of poking at him a little bit. He's like, I'm assuming, like, you remember what I taught you, Paul says, right? He says, the truth is only in Jesus. And church, the culture is asking this question, where is truth? And the church needs to stand fixed and rooted in this idea that the truth is in Jesus. We need to point culture to Jesus. That's where truth is. That's where hope is. You want to escape a futile mindset and a way of understanding that's darkened, point them to Jesus. That's where hope and truth and light is found. And, and the problem of, of living a life in which you give yourself over to impurity and immorality is it becomes an addicted place, a place that holds you to bondage. But the hope is this, is that in Jesus, we can be made new and we can be set free. That it's not about trying really hard to get free of an old life. Paul says, no, no, no. This is the work that Jesus is doing on your behalf. Let us pick up again in chapter 4, verse 20 through 24. Paul says, but that's not the way you've learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And you're to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And what Paul says there is beautiful. He says, you can leave behind that old way of living. Now, Paul is not arguing here for a works salvation. Remember Ephesians 2, he says, it is by grace you have been saved and this not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, right? Paul has no illusions of when he says, set off the old self, he's not saying try really hard. No, what he's saying is give your life over to this new way of living. Leave behind the patterns and practices and thought patterns of an old way of living and step into this new life that Jesus is offering you. And notice what he says about, he says, put off your old self. And then he says, let your mind be renewed. And notice in verse 23, and he says, and to be renewed. Notice that the verb there is passive. That, that's significant. Paul doesn't say, you need to renew your mind. It's passive because we're not the one doing the action. It is God who renews our mind for us. This is a work of the Holy Spirit that when you invite Jesus into your life, when you surrender your life over to him, God literally begins to change the way that you think and view the world. And, and this, I think, is a stark contrast with what he says in verse 17. You must no longer walk in the way of the Gentiles who in the futility of their mind, he says, but let your mind be renewed. 
I, I think of what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse two. Paul says, do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that as you come to know Jesus and surrender your life to him, he begins to change the way you view and see the world. And finally, Paul says this in verse 24. He says, and put on the new self. And the new self, he says, is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, to walk in righteousness is to live in a way in which your life is aligned with the word and the way and the truth of Jesus Christ. That's what righteous living is. And Paul says this new life that you've been called into, he says, is to reflect the heart and the character and the mindset of Jesus. And by the way, where he says it's created after God in true righteousness and holiness, that word holiness has a couple components. When something is holy, it's pure. Now, I can't make myself pure, but by the blood of Christ, we can be made pure. His blood takes away our sins as Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. But holiness also means that I am set apart in worship to God. And again, here, Paul is making this contrast. He says, where once the people of Gentiles are are greedy to practice every kind of impurity, he says, your life is to be one of holiness, one in which you are set apart to serve Jesus, where everything you do is, God, how can I serve you? How can I walk in your will, in your way, in your truth for my life? And again, church, this is the big idea of this entire passage is that we need to walk in the way of love. Now, up to now, up to verse 24, Paul has been describing the old way of living. And then in verses 20 to 24, he says, but here's the hope. You can be made new. Jesus can renew your mind. You can step into this new life. Now Paul gets really practical. And what I love about this is Paul doesn't just say, oh, you should step into a new way of living, but Paul goes the extra mile and he describes what that new way of living should look like. And what I've done is I've broken this down how how I think Paul writes it. He describes these walk in love practices and then gives you a rationale for why you should walk in that way. And so what I want to do is move through this passage, looking at this, this way that Paul calls us to live as a new creation, as those who've been renewed in Jesus, as those who no longer conform to the pattern of this world, but as those who have been transformed. But also it's, it's kind of a frustrating passage, to be honest. Because in this passage, I think Paul pushes us to wrestle with some things in ourselves that are sometimes uncomfortable. So let's walk through this. What does it practically look like? What does it mean? What does it look like? How do we live this out to walk in love? Verse 25, Paul says this. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only as such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as in God Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in the way of love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And again, that Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, that is a summary of what we're about to walk through of Ephesians chapter 4, 17 to 25, where Paul talks about these walk in love practices. So what is the first one? You'll notice in verse 25 that Paul says, put off falsehood and speak truthfully. 
The first walk in love practice to put on the new self is to speak truth to one another. Now, I I think there's two components to this. You'll notice that Paul says, put off falsehood. Now, of course, at the base level, this means don't lie to each other, right? But I think in the context of what Paul's saying, notice what he said earlier. Do not walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding. I think also what Paul is talking about is he's saying, put off the falsehoods of culture put off the false philosophies, put off the falsehoods of a world that doesn't know Jesus. Don't speak those philosophies. Don't proclaim those things to each other. Paul says, speak the truth and proclaim the truth and the hope of the gospel. And and by the way, this is not the first time that Paul said this. In Ephesians 4, 15, Paul says this. He says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Notice what Paul says, that we are to speak the truth in love. Put off falsehood, speak truth to one another. And why? Paul says, because you are members together. What he means is you are living in community together. And when we live in community with one another, we are called to speak truth to one another. Now, I think it's important that love and truth go together. And often we want to fall off that ladder one way or the other, right? So some of us, you're high truth people. And you high truth people, you go, I'm going to say hard things because you need to hear it. And you, you just lay it out there. Now, sometimes where we miss the boat is we say hard things, but maybe not in a way where the other person can receive it. And we don't actually say it with their best interest in mind. We say it because they just quite frankly annoy us, right? Like you're wrong. Here's the truth. Get over it, right? Others of us, we fall off the ladder this way. It's like, ah, you know, I want to be loving and I'm kind and compassionate. Like I don't want to say anything offensive, but that's not actually love, right? Truth and love have to coexist together. There's a tension there. We have to speak the truth in love. When you speak truth in love, it means you say truthful things because you want the other person uh, to grow up into maturity in Christ. So it's driven by their best interest. So when you say and speak truthful things, is it because you have a genuine interest to see that person flourish in Jesus? It should be. And, And here's the reality. All of us have blind spots. Right? I I have things in myself that I am blind to. Now, those around me, my friends, my wife, they're not blind to those things. They know those things. But often I'm blind to them. And it becomes a gift when someone I love speaks the truth into my life and says, hey, do do you know you're like this? Oh, I hate hearing that. But it it is a wonderful place of grace. Second walk in love practice, Paul says in verse 426, he says this. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And why does he say this? He says, because you don't want to give the devil an opportunity. Or the NIV says, don't give the devil a foothold. Now notice, Paul does not say it's a sin to be angry. He says, be angry, but don't sin in your anger. Right? And scripture talks about anger. James chapter one says this. It says, my brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Right? James doesn't say you can't be angry. He just says, be slow to get there. He says this because human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Did you catch that? Anger does not lead to right living. You, you can be angry, Paul says, but resolve it quickly. And, and I think that image of, uh, as the NIV says, do not give the devil a foothold is fascinating. If, if you've ever climbed, like rock climbing, sometimes your tendency is to use all your upper body but you don't get any leverage that way. Where you get real leverage is when you find a foothold. When you can bear your body weight on your legs and push up, you get leverage to gain a better foothold, right? Think about if you were reaching something on the top shelf of your kitchen cabinet, right? If I said you can only use your arms to get there, guess what? I'm not getting anything off the top shelf, right? I have no upper body strength. So if I'm trying to get something on the top shelf and I can't use a footstool, I'm not getting it. It's going to stay up there. 
but you give me a footstool, a place where I can get leverage, then I can reach into that place. Catch this, church. When we let unresolved anger fester in our heart and life, you give the devil leverage and a place in which to operate in your life. I don't like the sound of that. The ESV, I think, captures this well. When you let unresolved anger fester, it gives the enemy enemy an opportunity to let things grow in your heart and life that shouldn't be there. Can we do an exercise together? Who makes you really angry? I want you to picture that person. Right now you're like, now I'm angry at you. I don't want to picture that person, right? <laughs> Who, who's that person? They just, they annoy you. And if we're honest, annoyance is really just low-key anger. We don't want to call it anger, but it's anger, right? I want you to hold that, picture, that person's picture in your mind. Be angry, but in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're angry. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Where anger festers, it gets toxic. And where it gets toxic, it begins to affect how we relate to and how we interact with other people. To be continued on that thought. Paul continues. The next walk in love practice is this, verse 4, uh, 28. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with everyone in need. Now, notice what Paul says. He says, you should work honestly. Why? So that you can be generous. And, and even this is countercultural, right? The, the American dream is to earn all you can, save all you can, so you can enjoy all you can, save up, get the nice house, nice cars, all the things. But Paul says, work honestly so that you can be generous. It's not just so that you can have a life of convenience, comfort, and safety so that you can enjoy all the pleasures. No, Paul says, live in an outward way in which you can be generous with one another. Now, he also says this, the thief must no longer steal. And for most of us in this room, we picture the guy with the ski mask, right? Who breaks into your house and steals all your things. And you're like, well, I'm not a thief. I'm off the hook here. Right, but Paul, when he's writing to the early church, the early church had had people from all socioeconomic ladders within it. You can see this in the book of Philemon, right? Paul writes to uh, Philemon, a slave owner, and says, you should let Onesimus, your slave, go. Both the slave owner and the slave were in church together. That's a beautiful picture of church, right? And Paul says, you should let him go. Let him be free. So when Paul writes this to the church, he has in mind, I think, the slave who it would be common practice when they go to the market and whatever they buy with the master's money, they would inflate the price, give the master less money back and pocket the difference. Paul also has in mind white-collar crime like the business owner who dishonest scales were a big thing in the first century, right? If you can throw the weights off, I actually give you less product than you paid for so that I can turn around and sell more, right? Paul's not writing to lost people. He's writing to the church. And he's saying, there's thieves among you. There are people who will take advantage of others for your own gain. Paul says, don't do that. Work honestly so that you can be generous, And this is an entire different way of thinking where our lives should be focused outwardly and saying, what God has blessed me with, I should turn around and be generous and be a blessing to others. That is a walk in love practice. That is a way of living that I think is pretty counter-cultural. Paul continues. The fourth walk in love practice is this in verse uh, 29. And can I just say this before we keep going? Like sometimes Paul says things and I'm like, I just want to shut the book and be like, Paul, you need a break. You need a timeout because I don't like what you're saying, right? Anybody feel that? So I continue. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only as such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Ugh. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. And by that word, that word corrupting, it literally means 
pointless. It literally means words that don't bring any value. Elsewhere, that word is translated as rotten or decaying. Paul says, don't let rotten, decaying things come out of your mouth. Now, now let me ask you this question. Picture that person who angers you that we talked about earlier. Hold their picture in your mind. Now, let me ask you this question. How do you speak about that person? Do the words that come out of your mouth about that person you can't stand, are they building upwards? Are they words that are a conduit of God's grace into their life? Or are they sometimes corrupting words? Are they rotten, decaying words that tear down the reputation of that person? And and notice, by the way, I I love how Paul gives no wiggle room. I, I would feel a lot more comfortable with wiggle room if Paul was like, okay, okay, let's be real. You can let a little corrupting talk come out of your mouth. But he doesn't say that. He says, let no, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. And I, I struggle with that, Paul. When we're angry, when we're fr- we have to rethink how we express anger and frustration, those things that disappoint us. How do we express those in ways that aren't corrupting, that aren't pointless, rotten, decaying words that actually suck the life out of people? Right? Proverbs 18.21 says this. says, the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit that the words, the tongue has the power of life and death. And by the way, notice uh, what Paul said uh, at the end of that verse, verse 29. He says, but only speak what is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. When you speak words of life that build up, your mouth literally becomes a conduit, a means of God's grace that speaks life and truth into the life of another person. And Paul says, you must, don't walk like the Gentiles anymore. Step into this new way of living in which the words that you were speaking into the lives of your spouse, the words you were speaking into the lives of your kids, into the lives of your coworker, into the life of your neighbor, into the life of the people around you is building up words that speak life and encourage people to truth. Then Paul continues and he says in verse 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed. Verse 31, let all bitterness... I don't get to be a little bitter. Paul goes, no, 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 let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor. That word clamor means like angry yelling. And by the way, all caps on social media, I think counts here. And, and can we just, let's step into an aside. I'll come back to this in a second. Listen, can I just say, I think it's really futile to argue with people on social media, right? We spend time and energy. How many times have you walked away from a social media argument with a day ruined? Like, I can't believe what that person said or what they think. Listen, it's not fruitful. Let's invest in the lives of people right around to speaking truth and words that build up, modeling the life that Jesus calls us to, right? I think that's a futile endeavor. Ephesians 4. So here we go. (laughs) Ephesians 4, verse 30. Verse 31, he says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, angry yelling, slander, let it be put away from you along with all malice, right? And Paul says this in conjunction with those corrupting words, with that that grieving of the spirit. He says, set those things aside. These have no room in the life of the believer who's stepping into a new way of living. The fifth walk in love practice is this, verse 32. Paul says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, Forgiving one another as in God, as God in Christ forgave you. Be kind, tenderhearted. Okay, let's step back into that exercise. Who's that person that angers you? And seriously, maybe they're even in the room. Don't point at him like, yeah, it's that guy. Right, don't do that. But when you live in community, we're, we're going to have moments where we wound and offend each other, right? 
I, I love my family dearly, my extended family, my uh, immediate family, but there's times we hurt and wound and offend each other. And I can tell you that bitterness and rage and malice and slander have never been helpful, but being kind, tenderhearted, and, and forgiving has been really helpful. So again, close your eyes if you need to. Who's that person that angers you? Who's that person that you can't stand? And here's the thing, in your mind, you're justified in your anger and you might be right. I'm not gonna tell you not, I don't know the situation. Hold in mind that person that you're angry with. Do you see their face? And some of you, I know you're getting that sick feeling in the pit of your stomach. You go, I don't, I don't wanna think about that person. Hold that picture in your mind. Hear the word of the Lord. Be kind, be tenderhearted. When was the last time you met somebody tenderhearted? And forgive. And church, here's why Paul says forgive. He says, you are to forgive because God in Christ forgave you. When we were sinners, when we rebelled against God, when we said, God, I don't want anything to do with you, God was kind and compassionate and tenderhearted towards us. I want to read for you a quote this morning. Um, This is from a man named Reverend John Watson, and he was a Scottish pastor who lived in the late 1800s. And, And he says this, He says, the man beside us, the person beside us also has a hard fight with an unfavoring world, with strong temptations, with doubts and fears, with wounds of the past, which have skinned over, but which smart when they're touched, right? Do you you catch what he's saying? The person next to you, he's saying that person is, is, they're fighting a hard battle. They are facing temptations. They have doubts. They have fears. They have wounds and insecurities from their past, which have sort of healed, but are still painful. And he says, it's a fact, however surprising, right? We like to be sympathetic with our own wounds. We like to be sympathetic with our own shortcomings. But, but what Reverend Watson is saying is that person next to you has also had difficult moments. He says, and when this occurs to us, we are moved to deal kindly with him, to bid him be of good cheer, to let him understand that we are also fighting a battle and we are bound not to irritate him and not to press hardly upon him. I think church, often that person that you are angry with, that person that you are frustrated with, that person that you are annoyed with, that you just can't stand. Can you find the grace in Jesus Christ to be kind and tenderhearted, recognizing that they too are fighting a hard battle and they have their own wounds and they have their own doubts and they have their own fears? What would change in those interactions if we could respond in love and grace and compassion and care rather than anger and annoyance and condemnation? Maybe we would have opportunities to speak truth and love and help that person grow into the maturity of Jesus Christ. Now, in the middle of this passage, Paul makes this statement, verse 30. I want to flesh this out quickly. He says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And there's that question, right? What does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? It's this. Grieving the Holy Spirit is about living in a way that is out of alignment with the truth of who God is. And thus does not bear witness to the reality that God's spirit lives in you. Paul said this in chapter one. He says, you are marked with a seal, right? God has placed his stamp of identity on you. And that seal is the Holy Spirit. When you become a believer, we believe that the Holy Spirit, God's presence resides in you. But you grieve the spirit who resides in you when you live in a way that does not align with the walk in love practices that Paul just outlined for us. You grieve the spirit when you don't speak truth. You grieve the spirit when you let anger fester in your life. We grieve the spirit when we use others for our own gain. We grieve the spirit when we speak corrupt words, we grieve the spirit when we are not kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving. Why? Because that's who God is. 
right? Paul is not just saying these love practices are great things. He's saying, no, this is the character of God. And this is also who you ought to be. Therefore, five verse one, right? This is the conclusion. Therefore, be imitators of God. What you see in the life of Jesus, you are to model as beloved children. Do you you ever sit in a room and you do something, maybe it's the way you cross your arms or hold your face and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm becoming my father, right? Like you you can't escape it because his DNA is in you, right? And uh, there many times I'll find myself holding myself in such a way and I'm like, oh, my dad does that. Good or bad, like that's who I'm becoming, right? When, When Paul says be imitators of God, he's not saying try hard to mimic the father. He's saying when the life of God is in you, that's what comes out of you because that's whose life and character is in you. Walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, your life is not to be lived with the greediness to experience all the pleasure you can find, but it is to be lived in a loving, self-sacrificial way in which you pour out your life for others. So here, the application is simple. I want to encourage you to walk in the way of love. And, and I've got some questions that I want you to wrestle with. Where do you need to speak truth? Where is unresolved anger in your life that the spirit is right now pressing into and saying, you need to resolve this? Where where is God calling you to cultivate generosity? How is your speech? Does it build up or is it corrupting? Who do you need to forgive? Right? And that's a process. And maybe what happens today is you leave this moment saying, I want to pray that God would grace me to forgive. And I want to leave you with this. Church, now this I say, and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the culture does around you in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But church, that is not the way we learned Christ. You were to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupted through deceitful desires. And you are to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and true holiness. Therefore, church, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. And I pray, church, that we would walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Would you pray with me? God, I I thank you for the truth of your word. And I thank you for just the gift of Paul as he writes and has a way of cutting right to the heart of matter. And God, sometimes I want to give myself space and excuses to justify things that are not of you. We can feel justified in our anger. We can feel justified in our malice, in our slander of another person. And yet the spirit bears witness against those things. And God, I just am so appreciative that as you call us to new life, as you call us to walk in the way of love, this is not a way in which we have to try really hard, but it's a way in which we need to yield to the working of your grace that's already in us. So Father, we humbly ask this morning, would you in your grace empower us to be imitators of your son, Jesus? Would you help us to walk in a loving, self-sacrificial way? that we might bear witness to a lost culture that the truth, Jesus, truly is only found in you. Grace us, Jesus, to walk in that way. Where there is anger, grace us to push to resolution. Where there is unforgiveness, Lord, grace us to walk in the spirit of Christ and to forgive one another because you've already forgiven us.
And may we be people who are kind and tenderhearted and forgiving. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.